Okay, let's see where we'll end up. There we go. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? Welcome to Billy Watson TV. I'm very honoured and privileged and very excited to have two wonderful guests with me today. We've got Dr. Tom Cowan and Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Billy. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Um, so, obviously, you guys have been at the forefront for what's been happening in the world in the past year and a half. But just before we get to that point, can you... Um, give my audience, and I'm sure you've done it quite a few times by now, just a brief background about yourselves and how you came to be involved, uh, kind of the leading uh, edge of this true science on, on our health. Uh, would you like to start, Tom? Uh, well, I've been, uh, you know, what can I say? So I, I grew up in a sort of normal way, I think, except they uh, sometimes called me Doubting Thomas just because they didn't believe most people. Uh, then I went to uh, to college, didn't really like that, so I joined the Peace Corps and taught gardening. Uh, then I went to medical school, didn't really like that either. Uh, then I uh, did a little bit of family practice, didn't like that, so I eventually quit. And uh, did basically primary care medicine for 37 years, wrote a bunch of books on how the heart doesn't pump the blood and cancer has not got anything to do with genetics and vaccines aren't good for you. And then I made a inadvertent video because somebody was taping it uh, at the very beginning of the COVID thing saying viruses don't cause disease because I had, uh, learned about that back in the AIDS period, but I didn't really want to get involved with that. Uh, but that got me, uh, I think a hundred million people including Andy saw that. And so then I had to figure out if I was correct or not. And so that's what I've been doing the last year and a half. That's interesting because um, you said you, you said that at the start of this thing, but you've got this book here, The Contagion Myth, which I pre-ordered on Amazon. And then I only got it because it got banned before it even got released. They had to give the pre-orders. What stage was that? That was quite early into the whole um, lockdown scenario, was it not? Yeah, that was basically my response to, um, you know, so I got a lot of feedback, let's say, criticism and uh, pushback to what I was saying. So, like I said, I had to look into it and uh, figure out the science of it. I, I mean, I knew some. Uh, and then it just became clear since I write books that I should write another book about this. Yeah. And that's what we did. So you're obviously quite used to the quite controversial subjects. I mean, the ones you've touched before are challenging the norm. So it's kind of normal for you to put your neck out there kind of thing. Uh, it is, but it never was quite like this um, because mostly mo people ignore, ignored me before. <laughs> um, so, and that's fine. Um, they, try, they ignore me now. <laughs> I think there's a lot more people paying attention to you through the virus work that you're doing. Is that allowing them to understand your previous work more as well? You get more of an audience for that through this? Yeah, maybe. Uh, and, and, you know, I tell people now that I, over the years, obviously, I've made a lot of mistakes and got a lot of things wrong. Um, and so I try to correct them as I go. But what I've come to realize, and I think this is, is actually 100% accurate, Every mistake I've made was because I believed what I was taught or the dominant narrative 
without investigating it. So as an example, early on in this, I said, well, they did find the chickenpox virus uh, in people with chickenpox. And then eventually somebody asked me, do I have a, a reference for that? And I thought and said, no. And so why do you why do you think that? And I thought I said, well, everybody thinks. I mean, that's just what we think. Yeah, there's a trend. Yeah, and, and I don't actually. I didn't actually know where I got that from. And so eventually, I looked into it and found there is no such reference. Nobody has ever found a chickenpox virus, any uniform morphologically identical particle from any person with chickenpox. That's just the facts. And why did I say that? Just because, I mean, I just didn't look into it. But and then I try not to do that anymore, but you know, it happens. Well, it was actually, you may be aware of, I was Don Lester and David Parker who wrote the book, What Really Makes You Ill. Um, I was talking to them this morning, they're talking about these subjects and they were, I said, you know, what could they talk to you guys about? And they mentioned a few things of, of which a lot of people are talking about, but of which there's no actual evidence. And I've heard you and uh, Andrew talk about things like, for instance, shedding, that everyone's kind of just assuming there's a shedding and there's um, graphene oxide in the vaccine and there's gene therapy happening, all these kind of things. So actually, where is the evidence for this? A lot of it just becomes hearsay into the zeitgeist and then people are sharing it around. So it's very important to always revert back to show me the evidence. Yes. And yeah. and yeah, anyways, go ahead. Yeah, just one thing about you saying you're, you're correcting yourself as you go along because obviously you're not coming out the gate saying you know everything. So I heard you and Andy talk quite a lot about exosomes in the past. And, that, and when I was talking to Don and David, they were saying like that uh, there is no exosomes are no different from what they call viruses. And there's no active element to any so called virus because they're all just the dead cell debris. And they've since said that you've kind of went back on the exosomes things. So I was going to ask you to what you, your current thoughts are on that. Is, do you think there's any actual evidence for these so-called particles doing anything or are they essentially all just debris? Uh, I think Andy might be better qualified to answer that than, than me. As far as I can see right now, my tentative conclusion is that what we call viruses, these particles that that size, they're basically just garbage. They're yeah. just what happens when cells break down or tissue breaks down. And I'm not convinced right now they have any function at all, except insofar as garbage has a function, right? I mean, you know, you recycle it and make new stuff. Now, I could be wrong, and there could be some sort of uh, communication function of to these things we call exosomes. You know, the, the difference is a virus or a pathogenic virus is thought, the conception is it comes from the outside and quote, infects you. Yeah. That simply is a bogus bunch of baloney. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, whatever it is that you're seeing, that's coming from the breakdown of cells and or tissues. Now, whether those breakdown products have some function and some of them are, quote, exosomes and some of them are just regular old garbage, I mean, I, I don't really know. 
I mean, and it's of some interest, but it's not a huge interest. Nobody should. That's the kind of thing. If they want to do research on it, they should fund it with bake sales. <laughs> yeah, because basically all this is is just the cells are broken down into different fragmented parts. Some of them get reabsorbed, as you say, recycled back in because yeah. they've got no material and the rest just get flushed out. So everyone is talking about 99.7% survival rate is actually muddy in the waters because literally there's nothing to survive. Because I think you've been talking about the recent Stefan Lanka experiment where he repeated the one from 1954 that John Ender's done, whereby he done the blind experiment to prove that with the human tissue or without the human tissue, the actual experiment itself produces these type of particles in it. Yes. Would, you like, would you like to explain that one a bit more for the viewers? By the way, we've lost Andrew, so it's just us two until he comes back. Oh, I, I was wondering why. Um, yeah, and, and you know, you're right. And, and so there is some interesting things that maybe should be investigated uh, of the nature of this garbage. Um, but, and, and you know, I tried a few out in this past two years myself. Oh, there's Andy. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't think I'm convinced that they, that the garbage has any function besides being garbage. Um, now, and I don't know if we want to shift to Andy. It's fine with me, but. Yeah, just uh, Andy, um, Tom was talking about how um, he, got, he was talking um, about, he mentioned chicken pox being a virus and he just assumed that. Then he went and looked for the evidence and he couldn't substantiate it. And I was just talking about how we have to be so important to get the actual evidence of things. Like people are talking about shedding or um, graphene oxide. And yes, actually, oxide. Billy, Billy, I heard uh, the whole conversation. I thought you had me in a back room, so no, uh, I didn't even realize. Uh, my, but but that's fine. And uh, I, I think actually I was the one who asked Tom for the reference on chickenpox. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I always want to see the reference on everything. But, uh, you know, absolutely, this is a really, you know, important topic. And the control experiment is is first and foremost, because every trained scientist knows from the very beginning that whenever you conduct an experiment, you need to have a control experiment to make sure that it's not the experimental procedure that is giving you the results. Uh, it's very easy to make misinterpretations, especially when you're studying complex living systems. There are so many variables. And if you look at all of the virology papers that which are published and alleged to discover a new virus based on these tissue culture experiments, you'll see that they never conduct a control experiment. And you know, this is highly suspicious. How how does it even get published? But but we have, you know, two examples where a control experiment was in fact done, and both times it showed the same results. So this, you know, essentially nullifies uh, the whole idea that there exist pathologic viruses altogether. Now, the issue with exosomes is a little bit tricky because, first of all, there's different names for these particles. And what we're really talking about are, you know, either on the micrometer or nanometer scale of um, subcellular particles. And they're sometimes just called uh, microvesicles. They have different names. And these have been shown to occur when there is some kind of insult to the cells. So there may be like a continuum where initially the cells are injured, but it's a reversible injury. 
and they might start inducing exosomes, putting out more of these particles. And in that case, they're generally called exosomes. But there, other than one experiment I know of, there are no experiments that actually show a functional role. We do know they contain genetic material, so that could represent some kind of information, and they're thought to be like messengers with this information, but there's no proof that they actually do that. But there is one interesting study where there are cells expressing exosomes and they mix them with a bacterial endotoxin. And the um, exosomes are able to neutralize the endotoxin and those cells survive, whereas when they mixed it with cells that were not expressing exosomes, those cells were uh, basically disintegrated from the endotoxin. So this was you know in a laboratory under artificial conditions so we don't know if it that's what actually happens in an organism but at least it suggests a potential detoxification role for exosomes but what i think is really the main uh, role is that when tissue is dying that and and there's different pathways that cells can die by the way but in all of the pathways they disintegrate into small particles. And, and I think it's analogous to, let's say that, you know, unfortunately during a big storm, uh, your home was struck by a downed tree that smashed through the roof, you know, through the second floor. Essentially, there was no way to repair the house, but you have everything in the house, right? That was in there to begin with. So what do you do? Well, you pack up your uh, possessions that are still intact, probably in boxes, maybe suitcases, right, to take them to your next residence. Then you go through and put all the trash into bags, right? Because, you know, it's, it's going to just disperse if you leave it the way it is. You need to contain it in some kind of packaging so you can transport it and so it can be discarded. And that's exactly what your cells do when they when they die. They separate and bag everything up in little packages. If they just released all the all of the things, some of those things would be very dangerous. Like there could be proteolytic enzymes that would degrade other tissues and cells. So, you know, in order to prevent that collateral damage and to dispose or recycle, as Tom pointed out, any of the raw materials just makes sense to do it that way. And that's really what we're seeing. And if you really look at pretty much any sample of cells going through this process under an electron microscope, you can find all different particles. And they, of course, you can always find ones that resemble what they say are pathologic viruses, but there's absolutely no proof whatsoever that that's what they are because they never actually showed them uh, to exist as agents that come from outside of our body and cause disease. Uh, it's something that we see universally whenever there's tissue destruction. Yeah, it's very important to clarify to people exactly what's going on with the experiment itself, that they never actually isolate the virus that they're claiming is the pathogen. That's, that's right. The other stuff they put into the thing, like the calf serum and the monkey kidney cells and stuff like that, they're in the mixture as well. And then they look at these viruses and then they just say, okay, that one there, that's the one that's the pathogenic one that caused the breakdown of these cells. And it's right. totally well, they, The only thing they can really call them is particles because th there's no way to tell what those things are exactly other than the most obvious thing is that they're bits of the dying cell. You know, I, I, I actually, uh, just this past week, and I don't think I've even shared this with Andy, I don't think you've heard this, but it, it's, to me, it just hit me, like the ultimate irony of 
the, the tissue culture experiment, right? So here it is. So we're told that the reason you can't, so everybody agrees, you cannot find a particle that you could call a pathogenic virus in any fluid from any sick person. There is universal agreement. If, if anybody disagrees with that, it's simply because they're not informed. So all virologists, all health institutions, all you know, virology institutions all say the same thing. You cannot find a this particle that's identical that would you could call a pathogenic virus in any fluid of any sick person. Do you mean now, like you know, like measles virus, smallpox virus, AIDS virus? No identifiable thing yeah. that you oh that 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 yeah. Not from any fluid of any sick person. Then they say you have to culture it in order to find it, which means grow it on a on a tissue culture. Now, here's the new point, and Andy, I'd love to hear. So if you, if you think about viral theory, so what are they saying? They're saying, you got this virus, it attaches to it and you know, injects itself into the cell, reproduces, makes thousands, millions of copies, bursts out of the cell, kills the cell, and that's why you do a tissue culture in order to find it, right? That's the whole theory. Why isn't an infection of your lungs a tissue culture, right? Isn't that what's happening? You got this virus, which you can't see. It gets into your lung cells. It reproduces, makes millions of copies, kills the lung tissue, spews itself out. Now you've got millions of these identical particles. That is a tissue culture experiment. So, so Tom, all you all you need is a lung biopsy, right? And you and you basically put it under yeah. the electron microscope, and there you go. There you go. Why do you have to put it in a in a in a lung, you know, uh, tissue culture? That is exactly what they're saying. Is a that's viral theory. It, that is what a viral infection is. So there's obviously no need to do a tissue culture experiment all you have to do is do a biopsy or do a bronchoscopy and suck out the lung fluid and there it should be millions and millions of copies and if you think about it, those are exactly the same conception right that's exactly what they're saying happens and and yet they say when you do it in a living person you can't find it like why not that's you just did what exactly what you say is the way to find it. I mean, where is it? It's all just ways to confuse the matter and make it seem more like a you know, this is the process that you have to do to kind of it takes you away from it and just get involved in the process rather than the just direct thing taking out and looking at it. Well, see, Billy, the they the scientists who were looking at it the way Tom's talking about it, where they're trying to find it in the infected tissues and fluids of a person sick with the disease, they they spent a lot of effort in the in the 1940s and early 50s doing that. And they were not able to find anything. And that could have been the death of virology as a field. But when Enders came along and won the Nobel Prize with this way of manufacturing vaccines, 
And then that manufacturing technique somehow became labeled as the proof of a virus without a control experiment. And then this just kind of came out of nowhere and became the standard. And no one has, you know, gone back and thought about this uh, from the beginning, you know, why it happened. But essentially, you know, they've already really disproven the field and they had to kind of fabricate this way of carrying on a charade. Uh, and, you know, I think that almost all of the scientists that go into this field, they never really think about this process. They just are taught it as a, an apprentice and they get publications. They, they see that it gets funded. So they just assume it's legitimate and that's how it carries on. And of course, in the current situation, people in this area of science are, you know, being propped up on a pedestal that they're playing, you know, a vital role in forming the world on how to stay, you know, quote unquote, safe. Yeah, I mean, basically what you're saying there is all vaccinations are pointless because we, there is no such thing as a pathogenic virus. So essentially this whole industry is being created and the thing they must know at the core is a fraud and they create all these things to, to kill everybody on, but they must know what they're doing is bogus at the very top. What about the history? Because you know when Louis Pasteur came up with this gem theory, which has never been proven, and then over the years I've had various other people speak out against the vaccinations and um, the system, but it always gets covered up. There's just too much money involved. What, from a conspiratorial point of view, do you guys have any views as to what's actually going on with this uh, virus? Is it gene therapy? Is it like sterilizing people? What do you think the grand plan is outside of just the simple medical thing, um, you know, in the bigger scheme of things? What's your thoughts on that? Well, do you mean in terms of, uh, you know, the agenda or the hidden agenda for vaccines? Or are yeah, you talking well, about germ well, theory overall? Well, first of all, they've been making a fortune on vaccines. And that's obviously an industry. But that industry is fraudulent as well, because a lot of people now are just going on about experimental vaccines. Don't take them. But would you recommend taking any vaccine? Is there any point to any of them? No, absolutely not. I mean, first of all, the none of these illnesses um, occur the way that they say with the causes that are relevant to the vaccine. So there's not any you know theoretical or rational way that a vaccine, the way it's stated to work, you know, could be useful. Um, but you know, the vaccine also industry was just about out of business because it was so dangerous that they were getting sued left and right and they couldn't make a profit. So the drug companies in this business went to the, the government. This is in the United States I'm talking about, but I, I think it's affected things worldwide. And they, they asked the government, they said, you know, we can't, we're not going to keep making vaccines because it, our bottom line is getting, you know, destroyed by these lawsuits. So will you give us immunity from liability right now? We're talking about product liability. So you make a product like let's say that you manufactured a fireplace and it was blowing up in people's houses and people's property were getting destroyed. They were their health was getting destroyed. They were getting killed. Right. Imagine if the fireplace company went to the government and said, hey, will you uh, alleviate us from any responsibility for the damages of our exploding fireplaces? And the government, in the case of the vaccine, said, sure, we'll make a deal. And they created a secret government court that has very, very limited ability to pay claims and also has a very strict 
statute of limitations. So in other words, if you don't uh, file your claim in that court within just a couple of years after you know your life being destroyed by a vaccine or your child's life, you have no recourse at all. But the company that made the vaccine has zero liability, so they don't have to pay one cent uh, for the damages from their products. And this is um, a setup for a really, really dangerous situation because if you are a company making this product and it's expensive to develop and it takes time to develop and uh, part of that time is proving the safety of the product, but you don't have to worry about the safety because it's not your responsibility. So you're gonna take shortcuts. Right um, now, I'm, this is not, of course, the esoteric explanation uh, where we could say that actually, you know, these vaccines are on uh, made in intentionally to cause harm to the population, and I do believe that's true. And you know, we could talk about uh, um, research done by the government at Fort Detrick and things like that around uh, cancer and vaccines, and uh, you know, really get into that, but. If you're just a regular individual making a decision, it's really simple. If if the disease is not caused by what the vaccine is supposed to make you immune to, then it couldn't possibly work. So if there's any risk, even you know getting a cut from the injection is too much risk for something that has no benefit. Uh, you two were working as doctors, and you were, were you were you given out vaccines in the past and issuing drugs, would you consider what you were doing initially these drugs are they all toxic? Even can you heal yourself by any kind of chemical or does the body just simply not work like that? It's what we put into it, you know, put good fuel in, it'll run better. So, I mean, I can, you know, because I worked as a family doctor for 37 years, I, the, the thing I would say about from my experience was, first of all, I, I wouldn't go to medical school until I figured out that there was another way to do medicine. So I kind of had this sense that I sh well, should be a doctor, but I didn't like it. And then I figured out there was another way to do it. So I started different. And then when I was in residency, I had the experience of a child who they, you know, I think it was two days or so after giving a uh, getting a vaccine had had a SIDS death, right? That's what they, we used to call it back in the old DPT days. Now nobody investigated; the child just died, and we all knew it was from the vaccine. And they lied to the parents and didn't re report it to anybody. So I knew that this was, you know, this was not the only time that it happened. Um, so I eventually, after I got my license, I left and then I spent 37 years, uh, like I said, doing family practice, thousands of children. I've, tr I've tried to remember, I think I gave between three and five plain tetanus shots in my career. <laughs> and I can tell you, the only reason I did that, like I said before, is because I didn't understand tetanus like I do now. And I regret those three to five uh, but I did it, and I publicly apologized. I don't even remember who, who they were. Uh, and, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. 
I can also say that in those 37 years, I mean, not all the my patients were completely unvaccinated, but because some I'm sure went other places. I never saw a death or a bad outcome from a so-called vaccinatable disease. I saw thousands of cases of what we called whooping cough and chicken pox and some measles and some other things. I saw lots of uh, children with those illnesses. Uh, you know, uh, everybody was fine. Nothing bad happened to anybody, uh, including my own children. So, you know, I have a lot of experience with this and eventually came to see it as they, that even, even the word illness for describing chickenpox or measles is incorrect. It's a maturation step. Oh. Uh, and so your body has, uh, you know, it's like going through puberty or getting your change of teeth or a snake shedding its skin. Now, obviously, there's some things that can happen when you, you know, lose teeth. You could get pain and stuff. But it seemed like there was sort of like universal toxins or universal experiences at certain age, at certain times of humanity that they would go through a, a maturation process called measles or chickenpox. Now, the reason I think that or in, in thought it and think it is every single study that's ever been done on what happens to people who go through this maturation process is they're healthier for their entire life. You mm -hmm. go through measles, you have less cancer, arthritis, heart disease, chronic illness, and you're, you, because essentially what's happening is you're rearranging your body and clearing out toxins and getting rid of stuff you don't need so that you can fit better in your body. And interestingly, the word I use for children or people who've been prevented from going through these is misfits. And we've got millions and billions of misfit people because they haven't been able to rearrange their physical structure in a way that's appropriate. And that's actually, and I, I don't know if Andy and I disagree a little on this, but I think my experience is that introducing like measles vaccines and chickenpox did reduce the incidence of what we call the expression of that disease. But the reason it did that is because you poisoned the child worse and they end up having something worse and they can't go through that typical maturation, harmless process called measles. So you've actually changed their expression of their illness to something that now we call, you know, chronic eczema or ADD or childhood cancer or asthma or some other chronic disease. So you haven't actually decreased the incidence of any, you know, sickness. What you've done is change it from a self-limiting, harmless maturation process, which will make you healthier for your entire life. And now you're chronically sick. And that exactly explains the epidemiology that you see once a society introduces 
mandatory vaccines. It happens every single time. They go from less measles, not less deaths, not less deaths. Let's be clear. The death rate did not change. There was a famous study, Rausch et al., guy, CDC guy. He, he claimed that everybody's reference is measles death rate decreased 97% pre and post vaccine. That's what he says. So question, how did he come up with that? So he took the death rate in 1920, and then he took the death rate in 1965 after the vaccines, and it was 97% less. What he left out was in 1962, two years before the vaccine was introduced, the death rate was identical to the death rate in 65. In other words, it had nothing to do with the vaccine. But it is technically correct that if you take 1920 to, to you know, 1965, you do get a different death rate. But it had nothing to do with the vaccine. It had to do with probably a lot of things, including hygiene and whatever, you know, lots of things happening in society, not pooping in the streets and all the rest of it. You know, sit in 1920, the cities were sewers you know, toxic stuff all over the place. So anyways, that's a bit of a going on too much. Well, that, that's quite interesting because I thought um, measles and chicken pox was like a detoxification. And I got chicken pox. I can't remember if I got it before or after I was vaccinated. And then I never got my son vaccinated and he never got chicken pox or measles. So that's why I was kind of thinking maybe the vaccinations are causing the chicken pox or the measles, and that's just like different symptoms of ways the body's detoxifying. And then you give you the cream and you rub all the cream on you, and that helps keep this stuff in to stop the process of detoxification. Well, I've never heard of it like that as being a necessary kind of process of growth and change to make you so stronger. So what I would say to that is if you get a measles vaccine and then you get, quote, measles, you're lucky because that means you've actually helped your body eliminate those toxins. Most people are unable to mount that elimination step and they go on to have, you know, chronic illness. So, you know, you do, you can see that from, but it's not because there's some virus, it's because you poison people, they get rid of poison through their skin and their mucus and we call that erroneously, we call that a disease called measles or chickenpox. Yeah. You got anything to say, Andrew? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think what Tom's saying about it being a developmental stage is not inconsistent with detoxification because you can have both things going yeah. on at the same time, right? Like when an animal molts its old skin, there may be toxins in that old skin that are being purged right yeah. at the same time. So, so it's not incompatible, but I do uh, disagree a little bit about the cause of why, you know, measles went away and why chickenpox went away. And if you look at, and, and there's no, you know, randomized controlled trials with a placebo where you can, you know, honestly evaluate the effect of these things. So what we have is epidemiologic data, which is not the best way to look at this, but it's still useful. And there's a, there's like three data points that, that are available for some, at least some of the vaccines and two for many of them. Um, one is just the 
the uh, incidence of the disease. Um, and then sometimes there's also mortality uh, from the disease, but most of these things have very low mortality. And then there, there is the time point when the vaccine is available on the market, but then there's also the how many people actually get the vaccine because it takes several years to actually ramp it up where a substantial portion of the population receives the injection. So if you look at the incidence of um, all, almost all of these diseases for which there's data, and including measles, diphtheria, and more recently, the the quality of the data I think is better with chickenpox because we're talking about you know in the two thousand time frame, and there are graphs that can show exactly how many people got the chickenpox vaccine after it was introduced, and you see it took about three years to kind of uh, reach near its peak, and then you can see when the incidence started dropping down, and in all these cases, what you see is the incidence of the illness is on a downward trend and near near the bottom, at least by the time anyone's actually receiving the vaccine. It's almost as if they have these vaccines ready to go. And as soon as they see a disease dropping, they flood it on the market so they could take credit for it. Um, in yeah. fact, surgeons take advantage of that uh, type of pattern all the time because let's say they, they're dealing with uh, you know arthritis patients, and normally arthritis has good days and bad days. It gets worse, then it gets better. If they don't go to the surgeon unless it's getting worse, and if the surgeon does nothing, it will get better in time. But if they do something, they can make it look like whatever they did caused it to get better, right? And then they get more credit and more surgery and more money, right? And that's kind of what uh, it seems like is happening here with the vaccines. Now, what is the actual reason that these, you know, illnesses went away? That's a more difficult question to answer. And, and it could actually be indirectly related to vaccines, like something Tom's talking about that, for one thing, we know that eczema, for example, uh, is much more prevalent and probably as a result of vaccines, and that changes the skin. So perhaps it's actually not the chicken pox or the measles vaccine per se, but it's just the toxicity of vaccines that changes the uh, nature of the skin, and then the skin doesn't go through those developmental stages as a result. Um, and you know that would be a great hypothesis uh, to look into. And also the other thing we we attribute many of these illnesses going away to improving sanitation conditions, as as Tom also pointed out. And you know early in the 20th century, you'd have hundreds of people sharing one toilet. So you could imagine, you know, it's impossible to keep that bathroom clean. There's pretty much going to be, you know, fecal material everywhere. And, and that's our waste. So we're essentially, you know, sharing our waste products uh, with each other. And of course, that's going to uh, mean that we have to purge those things out somehow. A lot of people would just uh... think I think that what what we're saying here are pretty similar variations here, and and I, I don't disagree that that it's there's it's complex reasons why these things went away. Um, I think there is a like you say poisoning, so you, you you now have bad skin, and so you don't have chicken pox, you know, and, and it wasn't really it was already going away anyway, so. And do they not just rename some things as well to something else? I think there's yeah. like polio. they do that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's AIDS, polio. polio. Yeah. 
So, yeah, it's pretty corrupt to the core. Just then, before we... I was wanting to talk to you a little bit about your True Healing Conference that you've got coming up and some of the guests on that, which is kind of more about preventing illness rather than treating, you know, people getting ill. But just before we go into that, just briefly, on the subject of Let, the... let me just comment on that uh, a minute, because one of the things I've said for decades is I don't actually believe in preventative medicine. And the reason is because I've never met a well person. Um, and, and so it, that, that's, and, and so if there's nobody who's well, and I mean like normal people, you know, they can see, right? I can't see properly. No, none of the three of us, our vision is messed up. Why? I, I mean, I don't exactly know, but. Computer uh, screen. What? <laughs> My when I, no, when I it happened. It happened before people looked at computers. Yeah, yeah mine gradually got worse pretty quick when I started staring at the screen too much. You know, and, and you know, we, none of us have perfectly healthy thirty-two teeth. Uh, huh. You know, on and on. So, if that's true, uh, which it is, then we need everybody needs to to be on a. I don't know. Not a. We, we need to take it into our own hands to become healthier like every day of our lives, including our eyes and our teeth and our skin and our mental you know, attitude, everything. So I don't see this as preventing everything. I see it as understanding who you are, what happened to you, how we got there, and what am I going to do to make my every part of me, you know, be the, the best me I can make, you know, so I can contribute to the world in a positive way. It's not prevention. That's the wrong concept. That implies, now I get, I get that people, some, most of us are fine enough, you know, we can go on and we're okay, but anyway. Someone that just wore off disease who want to improve ourselves and grow and, you know, become yeah. better. Yeah. About it's about human evolution. I think that's what's happening just now. Like, for instance, I was talking to Andy. I don't know. I lost my job basically for standing up against the COVID stuff. And a large part of why I had to get out there is because I didn't have a good energy sync with the people in there because their thoughts and, you know, just that mentality. And then through leaving that, you kind of, the universe, you can forge your own path. We have amazing power within us. Yeah. If you kind of stick to your beliefs and stay strong as who you are, it's like almost things fit into place to work yes. around. But we just get born into this matrix where everything's set up and you just go to school, get the job, university, you know, and live the, and no one questions it. But maybe this, I'm actually thinking this corona thing is all about us taking responsibility for, first of all, our health. First of all, we don't want the vaccine in you, so we research that, and that leads to taking more responsibility in all areas of your life, which is a blessing. It's like a wake-up call. And maybe some of us are at the front of that and some are going to be fighting and resisting. But eventually, hopefully, you know, a lot of us will see the light because the more you try and resist it, the more problems are going to come. We have to kind of get into sync with this because that's the way of the universe, that is life. So... Really, we've, uh, you know, we've lost our way as, uh, you know, I mean, humanity in general, I think. And what's happening now is a reflection of that. You know, we, we have neglected to take responsibility 
for ourselves. We just blindly follow what other people say. We don't think for ourselves, right? We all our free time we spend in recreational and uh, pleasure-seeking pursuits, right? We're uh, filled with, uh, you know, widespread addictions. Um, you know, these are the reasons why we are in this predicament. You know, it's really easy to blame the, uh, you know, psychopathic elite for everything, but they could not do this without our cooperation, yeah. right? And the reason why people by and large are cooperating is because of those, you know, um, losing their way, you know, getting away from the natural existence of men and women. And of course that includes our physical health, but it's, it's far more pervasive than that. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, um, you know, shift back to where we are supposed to be, where we do take responsibility. And the, the way that Tom and I view health is about personal responsibility that, you know, essentially the physical and other ailments that you suffer from are a result of your own actions, whether intentional or unintentional, and you have the ability to reverse those, right? Which is really just allowing your body to do its natural functioning, but you have to support it instead of getting in its way or allowing other things to get in its way. And, you know, through this independent action, um, that you can take on your own that that doesn't cost a fortune. Uh, in fact, it's it's very, very inexpensive. Um, will really empower you to not rely on these systems which are oppressing you now because of your own irresponsibility. Something we will say. And, and the conference is, is exactly like what Andy said. And so then you need a toolbox, right? You go to, you say, okay, I want to build a house and I have an idea that it's my house. I want it to be there. And then you need to get a hammer and some wood and a sawmill. And, and blueprints. And a blueprint and, and a conception of what a, a healthy house is. And so what we did was invite the people in the world, right, who we think know the most about a the blueprint and b what kind of hammer you need some of it's like a tuning fork and some of it is a water wand and some of it is an idea about you know showing you how sound affects you know life forms Wh whatever it is you know there's lots of different parts of this puzzle there's you can't just have one tool like that's the only tool i got because that's stupid, you know. You need you need to be educated, understand what you're doing. Otherwise, you get scared. Like I don't, I should. I'm scared. I don't know what I'm doing. No, you need to know what you're doing, and then you need to strategy very clearly. Like you you wake up and you eat this food, right? That's not it's not esoteric. So you two guys were coming together to uh, we how did you get together? Were you just talk get introduced and then start doing shows together? You started your COVID nineteen myths website and well, Billy, it was it was very early on because uh that that um Tom when he mentioned he ran his mouth about there being uh you know no viruses uh during that talk and it kind of went viral and somebody sent it to me. 
And it inspired me to, because he mentioned something about exosomes and he mentioned the analogy be, analogy be, uh, about if uh, dolphins were sick, um, you know, would you think there was something in the water or, or a mysterious virus, right? And, you know, I had like a kind of a vision after that or, a, a, you know, a, a, some kind of divine intervention that, you know, these particles were just being mistaken for what they were. Um, and that exosomes was the key to understanding that. And then for like 24 hours straight, I don't think I slept. You know, I, I looked at every paper I could find and that's exactly what I found. And so I think Tom heard me uh, maybe mention him and uh, Sayer G introduced us. But, you know, we both wanted to talk to each other <laughs> pretty clearly. And we, I think we, we pretty much hit it off uh, right away. And, um, you know, it was just natural, um, especially after Tom moved out to the part of the country near me that, you know, we started uh, doing collaborations. We did in-person talks together, and then that evolved into our COVID myths uh, series and now the True Healing Conference. Excellent. Um, who? So you came up with this idea for the True Healing Conference for the reasons you've mentioned. Who came up with the guests? Did you pick guests each? And is there any particular guests yeah. you need to go over the guests and just give a brief kind of introduction to what they're going to talk about? Because even I know Stefan Lanker's on, but he's not even going to talk about the virus. He's talking about the, the new biology, yeah? Yeah, well, we wanted to really, you know, focus on this paradigm shift and, and the future and how we can, you know, remake healthcare into something really meaningful and, and personal, according to the model we talked about. So, you know, Tom and I each had people we were, there were some that we both were like, yeah, we got to get definitely get them. And then there were some that he knew about that he introduced to me and some people I knew about and introduced to him. And, you know, we ended up with a, really a well-rounded group. So for example, um, we have Eileen McCusick, who I've uh, known for a while, who developed the theory of the bio, the human biofield, which is like a basically, you know, acoustic field that corresponds with the electromagnetic field around our body. It's a toroid shape and she can um, assess irregularities, incongruities in this field that correspond with emotional traumas and other uh, kind of stuck points or health problems. And uh, so it's it's really an, an incredible field and she's been teaching practitioners and training them for the last couple of years. And it, it's, you know, I mean, people realize the value of it. Um, I also, you know, wanted to invite Kelly Brogan because her book, A Mind of Your Own, was kind of the first thing that really inspired me to look at alternative strategies of healing. And it's the first time that I had someone with an anxiety disorder be cured <laughs> was using her protocol. And, and she's also been a very um, uh, inspirational spiritual thinker and she kind of blends the psychological and the spiritual. And so she is a great asset to talk about uh, this paradigm shift and uh, new ways of healing. Excellent. And then we'll go through some of the other ones. We've got Sally Fallen Morel. Yeah, Sally is a you know the founder of the Weston Price, and she basically talks about the history of food and you know how humans have eaten forever. Um, I was going to ask you guys about what do you think? Again, I talked to Don and David, and they're very much the plant-based diet, and the body doesn't need any meat and dairy and stuff like that. What's your guys' opinions on that? It's quite a, um, you know, I interview. I talked to another guy quite regularly, and he said he was a vegan. 
and now he's big onto the meat diet. He's like, you know, went totally anti-vegan. And I just wonder what your guys' thoughts are on food in general and vegan, vegetarian, that kind of thing. Uh, one, of the, one of the things, depending on my mood and how much of a smart aleck I want to be, is <laughs> I, I used to have, when I had a phone, I used to have a picture of uh, a famous American, uh, Native American chieftain named Buffalo Bull Backfat. And his portrait hangs in the Smithsonian. And he was like the, the, the cover of my cell phone. So if, if people said they thought that the human diet should be vegan diet, I would say, oh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna invite my friend Buffalo Bull. Uh, to, so I'd like you to explain to Buffalo Bull because his people were studied and they were, you know, no chronic disease. He was like 70 when they did this portrait. He's what they were some of the healthiest people ever studied. So please explain to Buffalo Bull, and by the way, I think it's because the back fat of a buffalo is the healthiest part of the, of the buffalo. So please explain to Buffalo Bull why he should stop eating those damn buffalo and eat broccoli and, and bean sprouts. Yeah. Because he doesn't understand that. Now, I, I'm not... I'm not for a completely carnivore diet. I don't think that is a human diet. I think the plant part is the therapeutic part of the diet. You know, that's where we get certain antioxidants maybe and certain phytochemicals that help with detoxification. But the whole point of Weston Price was every human culture that did well included animal foods and particularly animal fats in their diet and at this point i know of no exception to that okay because people say these days we're not in those types of societies and you can get all these things from fruit and vegetables and they're given naturally you know that's the kind of argument for it but as you say there's tradition going back thousands of years of people it's totally eating. theoretical show me one group of people who ate like that and in the reason they don't exist is because if you eat like that, you become, you lose your libido and become infertile. And that's nature's way of killing them off. So if you're too stupid to eat real food, you, nature says, okay, I'm going to keep, get it so you can't reproduce. So you don't pass on that stupidity. It's not a gene, but it's a, a trait. Yeah. That's quite interesting. What's your thoughts, Andrew? Well, I, I think I'm going to end up with a very similar conclusion. And, uh, you know, I've also looked at the uh, different indigenous cultures. Um, and, you know, for example, you have, uh, you know, the Inuit and Eskimo people right in uh, northern Canada who eat uh, largely, you know, seal meat, whale blubber, right? Very, very just fatty meats uh, as there, you know, hardly any uh, plant material at all. They're extremely healthy, have no chronic disease, like Tom mentioned. Same thing with the Maasai Mara people um, in the plains of Africa who eat uh, raw dairy and cow blood, right? And that's their, their, their staple food, very healthy. In my, you know, if you look at plants from nature's point of view, um, 
what we have here is that the fruit is really the only part of the plant that nature intended to be eaten. So you could say, you know, from the functional point of view, that would be possibly the safest uh, thing to eat. And interestingly, I do know at least one person who runs, his name is Lauren Lockman. He runs a water fasting clinic in Costa Rica. That's a very successful uh, and well-run clinic. And for over 20 years, he's only eaten fruit and lettuce leaves. And he individually is in very good health, but I don't know of any other people who have had that degree of health with that, or actually, I don't know any other people who have had that kind of diet. Um, it seems pretty extreme. But all the other plant material essentially is not made to be eaten. So it has toxins in it, right? Like things like lectins, for example, or other anti-nutrients. And, you know, maybe uh, because of trends, most people are ignorant to some of these things. But kale, for example, can suck the iodine out of your body and cause thyroid problems. And this actually happened to a group of children in New Zealand when they were eating the dairy products from cows who were fed on kale principally. And, you know, kale is thought to be a superfood, but actually it, it's harmful, um, especially if eaten raw, but, and in large amounts. So, you know, it's, it can be really, really difficult when you're soaking beans before you cook them, you're actually trying to take poison out of it. So there's less poison when you eat it. Right. And, you know, beans taste good uh, and such, and they may provide some nutrition, but it's not as bioavailable um, as the protein that you would find in meat, especially, uh, you know, in raw meat. So there so there are kind of natural reasons why eating plant food is not perhaps the best you know, thing to do. But here's what is really the kicker for me. The most important thing is that in all the people that come to me for consultations, that almost every time there's someone who has been vegan for an extended period of time, and sometimes even vegetarian for an extended period of time, they're malnourished and sickly. And I just see this over and over again. And many times, actually, they're highly toxic as well, because they eat vet uh, you know, plant-based foods that's highly, that are highly processed, especially things like fake meats or tofu. I mean, those are some of the most toxic foods. And then anything with soy has phytoestrogens, uh, which can affect, you know, things, uh, you know, like the vitality and fertility. So, you know, just like Tom mentioned. So I think for almost everybody, you know, eating actually primarily a meat-based diet, but it should be the right cuts of the meat, right? Like the high, the fatty meat, like Tom mentioned, you know, the buffalo hump, that that is actually much better for you than, you know, skinless, boneless chicken breasts are not what you want to be eating, right? You want you want to eat the all the parts of the animal and make sure, you know, especially that there's a, a good amount of fat uh, because that that's what your body really needs. And so that's really, you know, aside from going through a special therapeutic diet, like, you know, the cleansing or the the elimination diet right the the diet that is the most devoid of nutrition and most supportive of your body's detoxification is is a, a restricted vegan diet right and you you know you couldn't you'd be malnourished if you continued to eat that way this is just for you know a limited time for healing and then you know after that the next phase is to rebuild that give yourself full nutrition and you know almost always that that has has to involve meat, you know, especially highly 
nutrient dense cuts of meat like things like liver because there's this new age kind of movement it's kind of made it all love and light and it's like oh you're going to kill the animals and you get the karma and nobody wants to you know the buddhists you don't hurt a fly when you're building a house and all this kind of stuff and then that's became that's obviously been pushed with the beatles and the maharashi and the whole thing exploding and then i was going to say oh yeah basically they're just promoting the vegan the mcdonald's everywhere's vegan these days you know they've always got the vegan option the vegan option but as you say it's all these fake products that i'm sure yeah look at where it got us (laughs) (laughs) so i mean you know they're listen billy uh, considering the life of the animal is definitely important and i don't want to minimize that and i don't want to say that we should you know the way that factory farming is done yeah, um, you know now awesome. is like I, I i personally don't consume any meat uh that is produced that way right and uh you know the ranchers that i work with have a different um approach to how they do things they treat the animals with dignity you know they treat them well they have a decent life and then you know but it it's the it's it's the order of nature right that animals eat each other in the food chain and if you do this with respect and you pay homage um and you don't um you know abuse the situation or be careless about it uh you know plants also have consciousness and communication and they're living beings as well now we don't you know have the same relationship as we do with animals but the more we learn about plants that actually they do uh, they form communities. For example, you know, groups of trees communicate um, underneath the ground, you know, through their root systems and other organisms that uh, transfer messages and uh, different types of chemical um, signals, right? And that when one of those trees is, say, cut down or diseased, the the other trees in that community are adversely affected, right? Yeah. So we, you know, we could consider the karma of that as well. If we really want to to uh, look at it carefully, yeah. I also interviewed Tom Barnett, who was quite outspoken with the virus at the start. The Australian guys, um, yes, got less we, we both know about about Tom's work. <laughs> he talks about eating raw eggs and raw chicken and stuff like that. And what's the benefits of the raw element in that? Do you know much about that? Well, the proteins are uh, more intact in the raw state. You denature them uh, with cooking. So it, you know, at least theoretically is superior nutrition. You know, we have uh, Vonderplanets was uh, one of the pioneers in the modern era talking about the, you know, raw meat and dairy diet. And, you know, people can be extremely healthy. Um, you know, I wish I had the, uh, the stomach to eat raw uh, chicken. I have had raw steak. And of course, I like sushi. Um, I, I don't know about raw eggs, but, um, you know, I think there's a lot of merit to this and it would be, uh, you know, if I were younger I'd, and were reared on it, I'd probably, you know, be a lot healthier, but I'm, I'm curious to Tom's opinion on it as well. I mean, the bottom line for me is we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We, that's, that is the beauty of what Weston Price did. He looked around the world. He found 14 groups of people. He had, they had no dental disease, no chronic disease, essentially no medical problems. And so, it's, you know, you can use that as a kind of compass. In other words, people say you shouldn't eat dairy products because they're for baby cows. Well, it turns out 
that two or three, I think, of those groups ate dairy products. Um, so that's I wrong. bet they weren't pasteurized, though. Right. So the question, is, and I here I'm going to even correct Andy a, a little bit. The the Maasai people, as far as I know, don't drink milk. They drink because I lived in Africa and I looked at them a little bit. They drink fermented milk. In other words, they took you know when I was in Africa, they it would take the milk and they wouldn't drink it and they would put it on the shelf and they'd let it ferment for two or three days and it would be undergo a kind of pre-digestion uh, and then they would drink it. You say, why don't you drink it fresh? They say it's bad for you. <laughs> so here's, must the, here's, the, yeah. <laughs> here's what I used to say. Uh, I think people should eat a raw cooked diet. And everybody said, what do you mean by that? So you cook with enzymes and with bacteria, right? Not with heat. So you take the milk and you cook it with sitting there on the shelf and the natural bacteria that are in the, in the atmosphere, the air or whatever, soil. And that's exactly how none of the people that Price studied ever ate plain raw milk. They always fermented it and they they did a little bit, you know, so and and basically they it depended on the part of the animal. Like they don't eat raw bones. They cook the bones for a really long time to dissolve those uh, proteins. And we know now that, you know, collagen is important. And 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 then on liver, they would eat that almost raw or just fermented a little bit. Dairy products, they ate fermented. So that was raw cooked, right? Not with heat. And, you know, it's the same with vegetables. People, I say, how should you eat cabbage? Well, you should eat it raw cooked. What does that mean? It means sauerkraut. Because then you ferment it, you cook, you break down the cellulose. Those bacteria that by some amazing quirk of nature happen to live on the leaves of the cabbage, right? You don't have to add them. They break down the cellulose and make the nutrients more bioavailable. So right, you shouldn't eat raw cabbage and probably shouldn't really eat cooked cabbage, but you can eat it sauerkraut and that's exactly what the people did. Now, even more, they didn't eat, you know, fermented milk from just any old cow. They had special pasture and they managed the pasture and they managed the, you know, the, the reproductive cycle of their cows. They, you know, they, they burned the fields so that they had certain, you know, types of grasses at certain times. I mean, this was a science and that that's all that is in nourishing traditions. That's what she did. She basically said, okay, what are the rules of this game? You know, how do you do the, you know, I mean, even soybeans, soybeans ended up being, you know, a, a little part of some really good diets, but not tofu. They, they, you know, they fermented it for three years. And it's, that's called miso. And I, I used, I told people for years, if you see a food that only was eaten traditionally after three years fermentation, 
don't eat it unfermented because there's something really bad in it. And they never would, they would never eat soybeans. Soybeans were a green manure crop. You know, they, it was for, you know, improving the soils. So basically, bottom line is we forgot the rules. There have been some peoples who got the rules right. A lot of people didn't get the rules right. And their rules reconcile this raw versus cooked thing. Some foods are cooked, some are raw. There's obviously differences, you know, in, in, and some, you know, some ate grains, but they always grew it carefully, fermented it for weeks sometimes, the rye, so that and it turns it into good food. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel, just get the book, follow what it says, that's the answer. Excellent. There's a, there's a, somebody wrote a book called Wheat Belly about how modern wheat is actually bad for you as well. There's different kinds of... No kidding. ...that you can use, yeah? So modern wheat is bad, right. yeah? Yeah, when, uh, you know... Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say briefly that, you know, I've had someone who I worked with who had a gluten sensitivity and, you know, never ate bread or pasta, you know, normally but went to italy on vacation had bread and pasta like every day and had no problems because they you know they use an older variety of the wheat that's traditionally been in their cuisine and they didn't glom on to these super hybridized and gmo wheats that are used you know in in our uh food supply in most of the western world yeah. And what, what about, you know, all these additives and crisps and sweeties and all this processed foods? Do you guys eat any of them? Are these things, obviously, they must be poison, you know, all the crisps and cola and everything that people are drinking. They tell you what's on them. So, again, they're telling you full disclosure. And none of us go to a computer and research all these things. It, it's easy, know. Billy. If you want to avoid that, you the only packaged food items you buy can only have either one ingredient or one ingredient plus like salt or something benign like that. So like, you know, for example, you, uh, you want to get almond butter, the ingredients is almonds, then you're good. Okay. But anything, if there are any more than ingredients than that, just forget about it. Assume that it's, that it's either not food or it's poison. Yeah. Right. Well, I I used to tell people, they say, oh, so Tom, you mean I should read labels? And I said, no, if it has a label, don't eat it. Because yeah. you don't you don't have a label on your carrots. I mean, maybe there says carrots, you know, but it, you already knew it was a carrot. <laughs> and obviously you want to source organic if possible, because that's where the food gets the nutrients from. You need from. to know who grew the food. Yeah. I mean, if it listen, if you just buy it uh, without knowing that, it ha you're buying food with poison on it or yeah. in it. Right. I mean, it's that simple now, you know, I mean, organic is supposedly doesn't have that, but it still actually might, you know, so it's like the best thing is if you produced it yourself, then you know exactly what's in it. Secondly, if there's someone in your community that you have a personal relationship with that you can talk to them and you know exactly what they do. Right. And then if not that organic at the grocery store, right, is the next best option, but but it's not perfect. Yeah, there's, um, I've actually interviewed people. There's a few people in Scotland now starting to do their own farm. And when I do my talks, I'm trying to, I'm not very green-fingered myself, but certainly I think that's the way we need to go. 
is more and more people in their houses, in their gardens, producing their own food. Because a friend of mine did it, and I tasted these peas, and they were, like, amazing. I was like, wow, what a difference just in a simple pea from a pod. I don't know how much time you guys have got left, but would you like to go through the other guests briefly who are getting on the True Healing Conference? You um, know, uh, Billy, I, I'm going to have to go here. I thought we were going to go okay. for an hour, and it's been a little more. Yeah. I, I'm wondering we'll if, yeah, I, if you you guys can keep going, but I'm going to need to. Well, I'm in the same boat, Tom, but let me just say that we have um, speakers, several speakers talking about water, including Dolph Zantinga, the inventor of the water wand, which uh, structures water in a, in a stable way. Uh, Veda Austin, who is basically creating artistic images showing the intelligence and communicative abilities of water. That's just astounding to see. Uh, of course, Stefan Lanka, I believe he's going to talk to us about uh, German new medicine, uh, which is a, another uh, amazing approach that is largely, you know, based on psychology. We have uh, John Stuart Reed, who invented the cymoscope, uh, which is a way to basically look at sound patterns using water and talks about that relationship. And then we have James DeMeo, who has repeated a lot of the experiments of Wilhelm Reich and is going to talk about orgone energy and water. So, so we really have, you know, uh, a lot of depth and breadth coming from different um, angles. We have the Biggleson brothers also who are going to talk about the holographic blood and uh, terrain theory. So we really kind of have a well-rounded, um, you know, group covering uh, psychological approaches, energetic approaches, talking about, uh, I'm going to talk about detoxification and we're going to talk about water purification and structure. And so it's, it's really, um, you know, I can't wait. Uh, I'm going to learn a whole bunch of things and, uh, you know, this is going to sort of form the beginning of, you know, what I envision as like a curriculum for the new biology and, and the new, um, healing arts that we're trying to bring about. Sounds amazing. It's two days next week, yeah? And there's also a workshop the week after. What is that? That's for? right. That's right. Well, many of the speakers, including myself, uh, uh, we're going to have a, a workshop where we're going to be teaching. So like James DeMeo is going to teach you how to make um, an orgone uh, accumulator blanket. Um, you know, Eileen McCusick is going to teach you how to do your own biofield tuning. Um, I'm going to teach about uh, how you can use natural healing to address uh, acute seasonal illnesses like colds and flu since we're entering that. So there's lots of uh, learning opportunities and uh, you can, you know, sign up for any of those workshops or for the main conference um, on the truehealingconference.com website. Excellent. Or also, if you're watching it just now, there's a wee link below for people to click the button and get that. And there's also some bonuses you offer two months to your True Healing Medicine website as well. Yeah, we well, we have several um, offers right now. So if you buy a conference ticket today, you'll get a two-month free subscription to the True Medicine Library, which is my repository of information and media. Um, you'll also get a free copy of Tom's new ebook, which he can tell you about in one second. And then you also will get a free ticket to my workshop on acute seasonal illnesses. So um, there's a lot of uh, freebies uh, for our ticket holders. And in fact, anyone who's purchased a ticket in the past also will get access to those giveaways. We don't want to leave anyone out. 
Excellent. Would you like to see what your ebooks about, Tom? And then you can leave us. Uh, I just wrote a, a, a summary called Breaking the Spell, which is, you know, a synopsis of uh, what what we why we don't get sick. That my well, viruses don't make us sick, so what does? In 30 pages, 40 maybe. Excellent. Well, thanks both of you for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Very much appreciated. And certainly good luck with the conference. And thanks so much, Billy. Whatever thanks. future work you do as well. Really enjoying your work and you're a good team. You're a good partnership. So keep it up. Thanks a lot. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye. Right. Right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. I was just letting it run a wee bit because sometimes it cuts off. So I didn't want to lose any of um, Tom and Andrew. But basically, that's um, the show. If you want to get tickets for the conference, you can do so by clicking the link below. Thanks very much for your time. And uh, cheers the new. I'm just looking for a wee image to pop. Cheers.